Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Lola Ogunike. Let me intro the incomparable Alex Gibney. He's an Oscar award-winning documentary filmmaker, and his list of critically acclaimed projects include The Armstrong Lie, Mia Maxima Culpa, Client Number Nine, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, Taxi to the Dark Side, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, and Casino Jack in the United States of Money. And now he's turned his sights on the late, great Afrobeat pioneer, Fela Kuti. With his new documentary, Finding Fela, Alex Gibney, welcome to the stage, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Lola. Good to see you again. Good to see you, yeah. <laughs> it's been too long. Yeah. Before we speak, let's take a look at a trailer from the film, and then... Sounds good. Let's get the party started, shall we? All right. One, two, three, four. I am Bella, who no mortal can ever kill. So let us turn Nigeria upside down. I am the law and will do what I please. So yeah, man. No diplomacy, no compromises, no agreement. He was an original artist, made a form where there was no form. When you think of Parliament Funkadelic, Bob Marley's Whalers, Africa 70 was one of the great bands that ever played black music. He has no fear to get thrown in jail every time a single comes out. Basically, the idea of Nigeria is that militaries run this place. People were very scared. And then there's one guy, they say, speaking out against military. Straight and progressive, clean government that knows what it's doing. And I knew that this was trouble. Everybody knew this was trouble. There was so much corruption and so much ziggy-zaggery going on. The fellow was a thorn in their flesh. I mean, he was naming names. Everybody say, yeah, yeah. Well, I say I didn't die because I have death in my pouch. I can't die. They can't kill me. He was a synthesizer and he was also a visionary. And at the same time, he is dangerous. This man, this man does cause trouble, 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 trouble for everybody. By the time he comes out of prison in 86, he was like second only to Nelson Mandela. What does it mean to be out there in the street caring enough that you're gonna stick your neck out again to be punched, stabbed, arrested? As far as Africa is concerned, music cannot be for enjoyment. Music has to be for revolution. Music is the weapon. Trust me, it is quite a ride. I danced all night when I watched it with my husband. We had quite the party. So thank you so much for being here, Alex. You know, you've tackled everything from sex abuse in the Catholic Church to torture in Afghanistan to doping in the cycling world. So I'm wondering why Fela and why now? Well, I, I needed some music in my life. <laughs> now also, I mean, I think, you know, what, what interested me about Fela a lot was that he was a, he was a great artist, a great musician, but also obviously, he, he represented a tremendous force in terms of resisting people who abuse their power. And I spent a lot of time looking at people who abuse power, and it was nice to see somebody fighting back. 
Did you know much about Fela before you embarked upon this project? Had you been a fan of his music? Had you? I had been a story? fan. I had been a fan, but not, I, I would not say I was a Fela expert. Um, I got into this when uh, Steve Hendel, the guy who produced the Broadway show, contacted me, and he was going to take the cast and crew of the Broadway show back to Nigeria and perform this play that had been done by Americans here about a, an, an African, a Nigerian, in Lagos. And he thought that might be a kind of interesting documentary, and I, I agreed. But um, once we got into making that movie, and we started to make that movie, Fella himself just, you know, it was like he rose up and said, wait a minute, what about me? What about the real Fella? And we began to find more material about him more footage that hadn't been seen before. I didn't know when I started that a million people turned out for his funeral in Lagos. And we found this unbelievable footage from an Italian filmmaker um, you know, of that massive demonstration of, of, of popular support for this guy. So he, as I began to learn more about him, I became fascinated uh, and with the way that our journey was very similar to the journey that Bill T. Jones and the creators of the play had taken. They also had to discover him. And so it began to be about finding Fella. And in a way, finding Fella was also about what Fella went through, because he went through a lot of changes himself. Um, and like all great artists, you know, he, 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 he becomes buffeted by a lot of different influences. In his case, African, uh, European, particularly London, uh, and also American musical influences, particularly jazz and ultimately the music of James Brown. And then he meets this woman in, in Los Angeles, uh, uh, Sandra Isidore, who turns his head upside down um, and demands, which he accepts, you know, that, that he take a more political position at a time when music could make a difference. Uh, one of the things that I found most uh, interesting and compelling in the documentary is that when he met Sandra, he was singing about soup. <laughs> and she essentially said, brother, your music needs to be a lot deeper than that. And she introduced him to the works of Malcolm X and a number of civil rights heroes. And then again... Yeah, she was close to a lot of the Black Panthers. And, and this was a time when James Brown had just come out with Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And she was saying, you know, you, your music can make a difference. It can stir people. Uh, so, you know, get to work. And he took, he took that to heart. You know, there was something interesting, though, that happened to him in L.A., which was he got a kind of political consciousness, and he started hearing music like James Brown, which influenced him. But also, while he was playing at this club, this club that Sandra Isidore saw him at, there was a club owner who was an actor named Bernie Hamilton. And uh, Hamilton heard his music. He said, yeah, man, it's, it's good, it's good, but you got to remember Kiss. And he says, Kiss? What are you talking about? Like, to kiss somebody? He said, no. He said, keep it simple, stupid. And that was something that I think Fellow also took to heart. He began to break down the complexity of his music so that he got to a kind of essential groove in his music, which became more able, I think, to carry some of the political message, but also, at the same time, became more popular. And so there were a lot of things that changed after 69 in the United States when he goes back. And then when he goes back, he becomes this kind of 
uh, mecca for musicians from all over the world. Um, Paul McCartney goes and sees him there and talks about in the film, you know, how moved he was. But also, Sir, for, Sir Paul was so moved that he wept he when wept. he saw Fela on stage. That's right. And um, and then you know James Brown's musicians, Mr. Brown wouldn't go. Mr. Brown. But James Brown's musicians went. Bootsy Collins talks about how he was just in awe. Stevie Wonder went. You know they all went to pay homage to him. So there was a, a back and forth. It was very powerful. And the place that he liked to perform was called the Shrine, and it became a mecca for a number of Nigerians also, not only to go hear his music, but to hear him espouse his feelings on everything from the state of the world to the state of the Nigerian government and corruption. I want to check out a clip, and then let's discuss more. You wonder who this is for. Are there not police to protect? When they come, they beat the hell out of you. So there was very limited freedom. So people were feeling all that pressure. And then there's one guy, they say, speaking out against military. What is happening in Nigerian prisons is nothing short of Nazism. I saw it with my eyes. They were flogging boys, 8 in the morning, 24 strokes. They put sand on the body before they flogged them. And this is, a, this is not from court order. This is just water's enjoyment. If you look at what Fela meant to most of the common people back in Lagos, on a Friday, they can't wait to get to the shrine to come and hear inspiring lyrics or inspiring commentary about whatever the situation is in the country at that point in time. My dad was assassinated when I was around about 12 plus going on 13. And this man who didn't even know him from Adam is now saying that he wants to fight the cause. That was it, hook, line, and sinker. I was like, that's it, this is my hero. When boys, when boys come, Fellow was a thorn in their flesh. I mean, he was naming names. You know, there was so much corruption and so much ziggy-zaggery going on. And wasn't that a significant a part of his part of his appeal? The fact Huge, that he hugely was significant. To... I mean, he became like a little bit like Lenny Bruce became for a while. Um, you know, when he was at his height, a comedian who was terribly funny, who then began to engage audiences in this kind of dialogue. But Fella did it. You know with a real common touch. I mean, he began to sing in, in pidgin English, which was sort of the lingua franca of, uh, of that part of, of Western Africa. But also, you know, so he connected to, to a lot of people in a way that he otherwise wouldn't have done. And he engaged people on a regular basis in that kind of political back and forth. It was really tremendous. And you can see, I mean, it goes by very quickly, but Dele, uh, the guy who's, um, who's being interviewed there, was one of his musicians in his Egypt 80 band, you know, says very matter-of-factly, my father was assassinated. I mean, his, his father was a guy who was very much, as a judge, trying to oppose corruption, and they, they killed him. Uh, and fella brought him inside his house. And so the consequences were pretty high. And somehow he became such a potent force that that the authorities were even afraid of him. Well, and Fela faced death many times. He was jailed more than 200 times. His own mother was thrown from a balcony in his home and eventually died of her own injuries. What do you think motivated him to keep going in the face of real tangible fear and, and violence? That's a good question. I mean, that's really what the heart of the film is about. What kind of man is able to do that? And at the end, I think what kind of cost does it take on him? But, uh, you know, he, he just had this, 
this will, this determination, and was willing to go out and challenge the authorities knowing that he was going to get beaten or possibly jailed. And when he got out of jail, he did it all over again. He set up, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, he, he set up a commune in uh, Lagos called Kalakuta. And, but he called it the Kalakuta Republic by way of saying that, no, 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 this is a separate country, which, <laughs> which the rulers of Nigeria at the time did not take lightly. In fact, they raided it. They burned it to the ground. Uh, and which is when his mother was thrown out of the out of the second store. He also liked to call himself the black president as well. So also didn't take too kindly to that there. You know, it was interesting to see his children's thoughts about what it was like to grow up with both the icon and the man as a father. How did you go about convincing them to participate? Because they're notoriously very private. I think I was helped by Steve Hendel, uh, you know, who had developed a close relationship with them, and, and they had become big admirers of the play. Um, and so, the, you know, I, I, I came with a sort of seal of approval. Okay. But they were, very, they were very kind and generous and quite honest. It's not easy to grow up the child of a legend. And, and also, he lived a, an outsized life. I mean, not only their parents, or at least the parents of of Femi and Yeni, the, the mom of Femi and Yeni, you know, had to also to face the fact that in her face, he went and married 27 other women who happened to be hanging out in the Calicuta Republic simultaneously. Um, and every 27. night was- 27. 27. And every night would be a negotiation over who was going to sleep with Vela that night. And there'd be this wild um, fight afterwards um, for among the women who lost, and then that would be like four or five o'clock in the morning. And then, of course, <laughs> this one guy, Michael Veal, who's in the film also, who's st spending the night, noticed that, oh yeah, right around that time, Shayun, one of uh, Fela's kids, you know, came up and somebody had to take him off to school. He had his little school uniform on. So this guy, this guy lived like that every night. It was interesting because the temptation is to deify icons like Afela, but you present the darker side of this man, and, and you present him as a man who had terrible flaws. On the one hand, he's fighting for the rights of Nigerians, but on the other hand, he's a shameless misogynist. How did you go about balancing all that he was and the complex char character that he was? I think, uh, you know, I took it, you know, Fela was, was ruthless in his... Um, willingness to be critical. And I, 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 I took him at his word. So I, I think we felt we had to, you know, look at him with the same kind of scrutiny. I, you know, he was, a, he was a rock star. And I think sometimes rock stars can be oblivious to things and be very self-deceptive. Not only was he, um, you know, he, he, had a, he had a weirdly contradictory view of women. On the one hand, he idolized his mother, who was a tremendously powerful feminist and political figure in Nigeria, and yet he also, you know, routinely uh, said that, you know, a husband has the right to uh, kick a woman's ass in his own home. Um, here was a guy whose brothers were at the forefront of AIDS education in Africa, and yet he routinely slept not only with his 27 wives, with a whole lot of other women, always unprotected, and ultimately died of AIDS. And so, and, and, and yet, 
he wouldn't either take medicine or even recognize the disease, thinking that it was some kind of Western conspiracy. So it was definitely deeply flawed character, and I think, I think also haunted by his own the beatings he took, and the loss of his mother, kind of sent him off into another zone. He, there was an element of fella that was clearly unhinged or mad. Mm -hmm. well, for a while, he was under the influence of a Ghanaian magician, correct? Named Professor Hindu, and one of the, uh, I, 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 we don't have the clip, but there is a clip where uh, one of the things that uh, Professor Hindu used to do to show the power of African magic, would he would bring an assistant up and, um, uh, and, 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 and he'd be talking to the audience while he'd be sharpening a big knife and then suddenly he cut the assistant's throat and blood is spurting out and everybody in the audience, they're actually videotaping this, everybody's in shock and they bury this guy in the backyard of this uh, church and they come back two days later and resurrect him and it's somehow he's, he's alive. It was a stunt that this guy had done but it's a pretty gruesome and grisly stunt and it's uh, quite shocking in the film. There's, there's quite a bit of blood. Yeah, it's very graphic. How did you go about finding that footage and all the archival footage you managed to dig up? Um, it was hard. It's always detective work. And we found footage in Rome. We found, uh, there's a wonderful film of, of Fella at the height of his powers called Music is the Weapon. And not only did we find a good print of that, but we found some wonderful outtakes that had never been seen before in Paris in a garage. We found footage in London. We found great photographs in Los Angeles. Um, so we were looking all over the world. You have to kind of follow the trail, and of course in Lagos. Um, and, and then um, even in New York, suddenly Michael Veal, uh, who had written a wonderful biography of Fella, you know, turned us on to his cache of photographs that he had collected over the years. So it's always asking that person who thinks, well, maybe I know somebody who has this, who might have that. You follow the trail like a private detective. What draws you to these dark, complicated characters? Your Lance Armstrong documentary was exquisite, but again, a man who's dealing with a lot of demons. Well, I think I'm drawn to stories about power and the abuse of power, and that's a fact. And so inevitably, you end up dealing with powerful people. In the case of Fella, he was both sides of that coin. He was a guy who abused his own power, but far more importantly, he was also a guy who resisted the abuse of power and, and showed other people how they could stand up and found an art form. I mean, he used to say music is the weapon. And most people, if they say that, I kind of... Uh, I don't know, I, it usually means to me that the art is shrill. But Felleff was unique in his ability to find a way of making music in a way that uh, made you want to dance, uh, or sometimes, you know, get outside your head in, in, in a very spiritual way, even while the lyrics were extremely provocative and angry. Um, so how you could be sort of spiritual and angry at the same time, that was, that's, that's the artistry of a man like Fella, and I think I, while I was drawn to him because, in a way, this is a story about a power struggle, I was very intrigued in his journey as an artist. Okay. Let's take a look at one more clip and continue. Sure. This is what happens to we Africans every day. We don't know what's happened. We didn't even know what 
What offense, fellas, made yet now because they just came, beating everybody up, and this is what they've been doing. I remember in 1981, I was arrested with him, and that was probably the worst beating he got. He was bleeding from his head, and he was in pain, and you could see he was in pain. And this was the first time I now realized, was this what he was going through all his life? Then you want to see the police beating. Yeah. Hmm, I'll show you police. Oh, the police beating. It's terrible. I'll show you. You must see it. Look at it. Hell. See? Look at my ears. Right down to my ears, man. See? Bad. All over my body, man. Top to bottom. Again, you mentioned it earlier, but this is a man who was willing to put his life on the line for what he believed. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, well, you see the evidence. You see the scars quite visibly there. Um, and um, uh, it, it, it ultimately took his toll, but I think it also inspired a, a tremendous number of people, including his, his kids. And I think his kids, it's, while it's not easy growing up, as we talked about, being the children of a, of a really famous legendary person, somehow he was able to, you know, both Sheyun and, and Femi are quite powerful musicians in their own right and have managed to carry on this, this legacy even while being very much their own people. I was in Nigeria a few years ago for the Occupy Nigeria movement and Fela's music was the soundtrack for that movement. His words, unfortunately, are just as powerful, if not more powerful today in that country than they were during the time he was singing them decades ago. Do you talk to me about why you think they continue to resonate and just what his legacy has been and ultimately will be? You know, it's a sad fact that art doesn't always uh, change the world in ways that we might like. Um, but it endures, art endures, and the ability to um, inspire people to continue to resist is, is, is still very important. But I, I think we'd have to agree that, you know, the government of Nigeria is still feckless. You know, we saw the, how, how helpless they were in the face of, of these attacks by Boko Haram. And it's also been so deeply corrupted by, you know, oil. Um, and, and the government has never really managed to find uh, a way to avoid that ziggy-zaggery, as, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ricky likes to say. Yeah, Bela's old manager, right. the ziggy-zaggery. The ziggy-zaggery continues. We see it in the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. The girls still not have still have not been returned home. What do you think Fela would make of that situation, the fact that nearly 300 girls could be kidnapped for getting an education, and the government is completely inept and unable to find them or return them home? I think he'd be full of rage. I think he'd be busy embarrassing the government, again, uh, without any mercy. I, I feel pretty confident in that. How has this project impacted you, not only as a filmmaker, but as a person? Because every piece of work, I would assume, touches you in a, in a different way and, and forever shapes who you are as both an artist and a person. I think Fellow was both inspirational to me and also a cautionary tale. Uh, inspirational in the sense that you see a guy, as we talked about, who's willing to put his life on the line to try to make a difference, to try to make a change, and that can't help but you know, inspire you. 
the same time, you could also see how, you could see also what happens to you when you lose perspective, when you can't stand outside yourself and you become so consumed with the idea of who you are and how important you are that you become, frankly, delusional. Um, and, and I think for, for people who do make a difference and do become famous, uh, it, it becomes a terrible danger. And Lance Armstrong would be a classic case in point, where you live within the universe of your own um, mental environment uh, and, and, and you become completely deluded. And, and for a long time you can get away with it. And then one day you can't. So it, it was also a very cautionary tale for me about how that can happen. How somebody who is otherwise so astute can kind of fall into a kind of madness. That won't be happening to you, will it, Alex? Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to open it up for questions? All right. Hey there. Um, so I was wondering, there's, there's other documentaries about Fela and obviously a play too. How do you differentiate your work from, from those works? How do you separate this documentary and uh, how do you make it more detailed? It was kind of, um, you know, like I said, um, this film looked at the contradictions of the man. That, that was one thing that I think was important, but it was also this search, this whole idea of finding or looking for. And so it was kind of the search for an artist. And it was the ser my search, my own search from the outside, but also it embodies Fella's own search for, for a way forward. And that's what I found interesting. You can track very clearly the evolution of an artist. Music, of, music is the Weapon, which is a powerful documentary about Fella, looks at him in a certain moment in time. And it's a very powerful portrait of that moment. Uh, one of the things that this film does is it looks at him from different angles. And the play is one of those angles. But it's not just the play. It's also the way the people who produced the play made the play and how they tried to reckon with him. So it's also about trying to understand a figure who's no longer there. So those were some of the angles that I think I, I was able to bring to it. And at the same time, the whole thing, much in the spirit of the play itself too, was to be a musical. I wanted it to be Fella the Musical. That might have been what I would have called it. Uh, but I think finding Fella in, in this case suited it better. How did you go about weaving all of those pieces and making sure that one didn't dominate the other? Because it could have essentially been a documentary about the making of the Broadway musical, or it could have been solely based on Fella, the, the historical figure. So how did you meld the two? Because it was seamless. Well, it was, it was really four, if you think about it. I mean, there was the play, there's the making of the play, there's the historical Fella, the, the bits and pieces we see of him, and then the people who knew him, well, commenting on it. And weaving that was the challenge. I mean, this film took us over two years to make because too much of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and it starts to feel like an EPK or a, you know, a, a making-of movie, which I wasn't interested in, because we wanted to find those bits and pieces that weren't about you know, where you put the lights or what spin do you do in the dance at, at one interval during the play. It was like, what aspects of the making-of illuminate how they were struggling to understand the essence of this man? and how to present that in an artistic way. But to find the right balance along the way so that, so that each one feels as if they're advancing the ball 
was really the challenge. It was a benefit in the sense that the one thing I don't like about traditional biopics is ones that sort of start at the beginning and move rather routinely all the way to the end. Having all these different elements allowed us to move around. And so we could just skip huge sections of his life and zero in on a certain area. But we were interested in showing over time a kind of change. We see Bill T. Jones grapple with trying to find the essence of Fela. How was that process like for you? How did you go about finding what you believe to be the essence of Fela? Uh, I think I went through, I mean, I felt like I was seeing my own life pass before my eyes in the sense of I was able to watch Bill T. Jones reckon with it and come to certain conclusions. He, I think, zeroed in very much on, on his mother uh, and, 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 and saw that he was kind of set adrift and, and almost went mad when his mother died because I think he reckoned that he probably caused her death. Um, I was interested in in, in how he kept going deeper and deeper inside himself as an artist, even as he was trying to make powerful social and political changes at the same time. Uh, that was the thing that, was, that I got out of it, in terms of finding him. Um, another question? I know this film was screened at Sundance London. What was the reception? I know there's a largely um, there's a huge population of Nigerians in London, so I just wanted to know what was the reception to that film. And also, what are, has this film been screened in Nigeria? Uh, so far as I'm aware, it hasn't been screened in Nigeria. The big question is, it's, it's, it, it was set very recently to be shown to Nigerian censors. So the question is, will they let it be shown in Nigeria? Uh, it was shown at Sundance London. Sadly, I wasn't there. I, I was there for a screening at Sheffield, um, the documentary film festival in the, you know, to the north. But I heard the, the, the screening went very, very well. It was packed. And even in Australia, this is what I, you know, at the Sydney Film Festival, now there were a lot of Nigerians, of course, in London, not so many Nigerians in Sydney, uh, but they had to add, I'm told, two showings of the film at the Sydney Film Festival it, uh, because it, it, it was so packed. That's great. That bodes well, auspicious beginning. Another question from the audience? Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about your research cycle, like the time that it took, and then also your production cycle, the time that that took as well, and also if you can budget. Um, well, you mentioned two years, I know that. Yeah. But. I'd say the, there's no neat and tidy process when we take on a film in terms of the research and production cycle, it's not like the research starts, then the production starts, and then in this case, we, we flew right into production very early on without having done too much research because there was a trip that needed to be taken, and you know, in, in the documentary world, you have to be there. You can't ask them to take the trip again. So that trip to Nigeria by the cast and crew was one of the first things that happened, along with shooting all the scenes of the play are actually the play as it was performed in Nigeria. It's identical to the Broadway show, but, but anyway, that had to be shot. Then we started to go back and do our research um, and, and the interviews. The whole process took over two years, uh, and a lot of times the editing would yield 
an understanding that we needed more of this or that, and we try to go out and get it. Um, you know, we realized we didn't have nearly enough footage of daily life in Nigeria, and, and we tried very hard to get that. It was surprisingly hard to get, you know, for the 70s or, or 80s, for example. Um, we, we really felt we needed um, a voice that would tie things together, and we went on and found Michael Veal, not so hard to find. I mean, he, he wrote the key biography of Fella, but as we would discover things, we discovered this cache of footage of the making of, and there was tremendously emotional material in there, and that caused us to formally reinvent the film and restructure it, and once we found that, then it, it caused us to ask other questions and en enough so that I think if we hadn't seen that material before the Bill T. Jones interview, for example, it wouldn't have been nearly as informative in terms of talking to Bill, because I could ask him why he went after certain things or why he you know, challenged certain actors in certain ways. So it was a very organic process. In terms of the budget, it was high for a documentary, certainly not the highest, but, but high. Hi, you mentioned that you are interested in telling the story of like the dichotomy of a powerful man, or but you also just mentioned too that um, finding the footage kind of shifted the way the story was going. When you're beginning a documentary film, do you sort of have in your mind a way the film's going to go, or do you let what you find articulate that journey? And piggybacking on that question, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you've <laughs> what, got what is it? A, a friend of mine once said, uh, uh, films aren't finished, they're abandoned. They're abandoned, okay. <laughs> no, I, I think there comes a point where you find the right structure. At some point along the way, maybe this is the biggest thing I've learned over time, is that there is a... The, the film begins to achieve a certain kind of narrative or structure, and then it's as if the, these gremlins in the film start to speak to you, when you start to stray too far from that narrative, they let you know that you're going off on a tangent that's not going to be valuable, uh, even though maybe you've, you've gone on a lot of tangents up to that point. And there becomes the, a kind of internal logic in the film that begins to assert itself almost magically. And if you listen to that and are rigorous about it, then you can get to the end point where you think, this feels right. Um, but. To answer your question, I almost always start out with an idea about what the film should be or how it should be structured and almost inevitably change as we go. And this was a classic example. I thought this was going to be more of a kind of cinema verite film with very little archival footage. Turned out to be kind of just the opposite. Um, I did a film about Lance Armstrong. It was supposed to be about Lance Armstrong's comeback year, 2009. His inspirational about that. return to cycling. <laughs> and that, that was a, you know, I, I like to joke that that was, you know, I, I thought I was making Breaking Away and ended up making Breaking Bad. <laughs> um, so it, it can turn. But I think it's useful to have a structure in your mind when you start because it gives you some rigor as you go out there. But you always have to be willing to question yourself and, and, and also to realize that maybe you got something completely wrong and now you owe it to yourself to adjust accordingly to what you find. That's documentary. 
Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you that very much, incredible. Lola. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you. And thank you all for being here as well. Finding Fela, you've got to see it. It's really August powerful. August 1. August 1. Be there. And bring your dancing shoes, because it is a good time. Thank you so much. Thank you all.